Welcome back. Uh, this is Rob Cohen, and it has been a while since we've last spoken. I've done a lot of reading. Um, I was actually hoping to um, record with my brother Phil tonight um, because he and I actually read a couple of books, one at his suggestion, recommendation suggestion, one at my recommendation suggestion, but uh, wasn't able to arrange that tonight. So instead, I thought that I would update you on the uh, books that I've been reading, and it's been a lot over the past month or so. Uh, probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight books, whatever it may be. And uh, a couple of them that I wanted to discuss with you, share with you, give you my thoughts on. And uh, they're all completely different, um, which is bizarre, because I, I really tend to stay around similar genres and similar um, concepts. And yet, for whatever reason, the four books that I want to talk to you about tonight, they're all different. Um, so the first book, just to jump right to it, is the book that I just finished about three minutes ago called Tampa by Alyssa, Alyssa Nutting. I think that's her name, Alyssa. And this was a book that uh, came out in 2013, and it was one of those big uh, event books. I think that the anticipation was when it came out that it was going to be sort of like a Gone Girl, but uh, for a different reading public. Because I had heard about this book before it had come out. One of the podcasts I listened to had mentioned it. I think at the at the beginning of 2013 or maybe the end of 2012, this was a book that they were excited for and looking forward to. Um, I heard it mentioned on a couple of other different podcasts and some of the uh, Twitter people that I follow and some of the book blogs I read had mentioned this book. Uh, in fact, uh, our friends over at Literary Disco and Todd Goldberg, they uh, did a uh, one of their episodes talking about this book, Tampa. But it was a book that I was kind of interested in, but was also not sure that I would like because of how different the topic was and how uncomfortable I perceived the uh, the topic to be. And yet, uh, last week sometime, I got a uh, some sort of an email that said you know, it identified whatever it was special book deals or you know low price uh, books on Kindle. And I saw that this book was like three ninety nine or buck ninety nine, whatever it was, and so I decided to buy it. And so I, I just finished it. It wasn't very long. It was about 260 pages, which was one of the reasons why I didn't want to buy it in hardcover. I couldn't really see myself spending 26 bucks on a 260-page book, although we'll get to that a little bit later. But so I, I did uh, buy it and, and was able to get through it. And get through it, I guess, is an interesting term. If you're not familiar with, uh, with the book Tampa or what it's about, basically it's a first-person or, you know, it's the first person narrator um, story of a 26 year old woman who is a teacher in eighth grade English who has a uh, attraction to 14 year old boys. And we've seen lately in the news there have been a couple of instances of of uh, teachers, female teachers who have taken advantage of their their young students, their boy students, and we're rev we're, we're repulsed by this and we feel revulsion and how could this happen? And of course, guys, boys, adults and kids alike are all sitting there thinking, well, why couldn't something like this happen to me? But we don't really give any thought to what the emotional or physical impact of such a relationship would be. So this book is told from the, from the perspective of the, of the perpetrator, of the pedophile, basically, this 26-year-old woman who preys on these young boys. And it was told, I think it was intended to be somewhat humorous, although I, I'm not really 100% sure of that. 
I haven't really listened to any of the other podcasts that discuss the book in detail, other than the fact that it was coming out and they were looking forward to it. I haven't listened to the Literary Disco one yet, because I wanted to read the book first before I listened to their perspective on the book, and I didn't want their perspective to color my reading of the book. But the idea is that this is the the this is bad teacher, but gone really, really bad. Bad teacher gone naughty. Um, it's 26-year-old Celeste Price, who's married. She is supposedly, you know, a gorgeous specimen, uh, incredibly beautiful, perfect body, spends a lot of time and money to make herself stay young and appear young and skin treatments and all this kind of stuff. And the book opens with it being the night before she begins her first real teaching assignment of an eighth grade English class, or actually eighth grade English classes. I think she mentioned she has four or five of them. And the book really begins her, because she's been student teaching, uh, I guess, on and off. And this is her first uh, formal assignment. And she is, frankly, uh, um, masturbating in excitement for the school year to begin and all these young boys who she's going to have the opportunity to seduce and the anticipation of which boy is it going to be that she's going to really focus on and develop the relationship with. And she is not uh, in any way shy about saying not only what she wants and what she expects and what she likes, but also that she doesn't anticipate that these are going to be long-term relationships. She's going to use them and use them, uh, use them and lose them. That once they get to be a certain age, whether it be 15 or 16, that they no longer serve any attraction to her, that she becomes repulsed by them and will kick them to the curb and find the next one, um, you know, I guess the next lucky victim. And so the book really charts the course of her school year as she develops this relationship with this one boy named Jack, and she takes great pains to identify which candidates they're going to be, and then it's this um, calculated seduction that she uh, perpetrates on this on this boy um, to basically turn him into um, her little sex slave. And of course, along the way, um, he begins to develop a, a strong commitment and attraction to her, uh, even going to the length of, of telling her that he loves her and that he can't wait until he's 18 and they can be together. All these things that she, of course, doesn't want to hear because she can't wait to... Um, well, she can't wait is not the right word. She is anticipating the moment where he is no longer of interest to her and he she will then find the next person in line. The The book was incredibly uncomfortable to read, as I'm sure you can expect, but uncomfortable from the standpoint not because this is a 26-year-old woman and a 14-year-old boy and it's repulsive because of the, um, because of the social morality of the situation or the lack of morality of the situation and and because of the legal ramifications the criminal ramifications of what she's undergoing or what she's doing the, the reason why it was uncomfortable is because it was incredibly erotic and at times i found myself having to remind myself that this wasn't a mature adult mature adult relationship that this was her taking advantage of of a 14-year-old boy. And whereas I can remember back to being 14 years old and thinking, wow, what what would this have been like to have this gorgeous adult in a, a position of authority take that kind of an interest in me? 
I was also looking at it as an adult who is reading, um, you know, prurient discussions. And at times I felt like I was reading, um, you know, a penthouse forum, uh, a letter to the editor kind of thing. And at other times had to be reminded that this was a 14-year-old boy and that these types of things are not okay. And I, I think that that was sort of the intention of the author in writing it this way is to, uh, I guess, make the reader uh, really understand that there are blurred lines, I guess. I'm not sure that's really the right way to put it. Um, But that we are all guilty at times, I guess, of having these types of impure thoughts and that there are some strong um, personal motivations. Motivations isn't the right word. That, that we have strong impulse controls of understanding what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And this is a character who truly does not understand what's inappropriate. And at times, I, I, we as, as the reader, I think, hopefully it wasn't just me, that we as a reader start to feel for her, that we start to believe that she is is totally invested in these relationships and the, the pleasure that she derives out of the relationship with Jack, that we want her to get away with it, that we feel a little bit of dissatisfaction or sympathy when she doesn't get away with it. But of course, we know that it's going to end poorly for her. We know that this type of situation can't continue forever. We know that um, society will eventually come calling and, and the cops <laughs> eventually will come calling. But by the time that happens, uh, the, the main character has devolved so, so completely into, into this dream world where this type of a relationship is okay that she doesn't even see any other aspect of her life through a rational lens. Um, there are instances in which she turns a blind eye to um, serious situations where any one of us moral human beings would have would have done the right thing. She specifically doesn't do the right thing as justification for keeping her relationship going and obviously self-preservation. And she's no different from, uh, in some cases, the criminal on the street who breaks and enters or commits murder, that they look for methods by which to justify their actions. And in this instance, she looks for she looks at her relationship with Jack and the satisfaction of her sexual needs as a rationale for really turning a blind eye when she should be coming to the rescue. Uh, I don't want to give away too many of the the plot points, but uh, suffice it to say, she allows some pretty crappy things to happen and doesn't take any steps to prevent them or rectify the situation because of this sense of self-preservation, but also because she knows that it will jeopardize the the fun and play that she has with Jack, or as as subsequently occurs with the um, the second uh, boy that she develops a relationship with, and so you have this character who is not sympathetic, but who has traits where you can somewhat understand, or at least sympathize with her her plight because we've all had urges and 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 the desire to have certain sexual freedoms whatever the peccadillos may be and here's somebody who is able to live those out now again at times you fail to remember that 
the sexual peccadilloes that she is living out are illegal. They are preying on, you know, vulnerable young boys and potentially scarring them for life. And by the end of the book, you see that the two boys to whom she has exerted her, her sexual influence on, they've become two different people. Uh, and in fact, they address or deal with the situation that they were in in two different ways. One of them crumbles completely, and you can tell that his, he has undergone a complete transformation from where he started to uh, you know, the end of the story. And the other one seems to have, addra- have have adapted fairly well, doesn't seem to be as as put off by it and seems to come out of this unscathed and in fact with a higher degree of of strong ego. Um, but of course that that other boy didn't undergo quite the harrowing and traumatic experience that uh, that the first one did. And so I found myself at times being, uncomfortably turned on by the writing, which was very well done, by the way. It wasn't written like a penthouse form letter or something like that. It wasn't sleazy, although at times it did border on um, the completely prurient and and um, <laughs> uncomfortable. And, and that, you know, you kind of read it like you're... I, I, at times I was reading, I was reading on my Kindle, so my wife didn't quite know what the book was. She never asked me, but I, I was hoping that she wouldn't look over to see some of the language because I didn't want her, you know, obviously thinking of wondering what it was. Not that I'd be embarrassed about it, but I'd have to exp- I'd explain what the book was. But nevertheless, it's, it's, you know, it's not the kind of book that you would feel comfortable just reading out in public. Similar to, um, you know, when I first read the Harry Potter books, I wanted to make sure that I read those books in private because I didn't want people seeing that I was reading it. Well, this had the same the same feeling because you don't want people to know you're reading it. You don't want people to know that you're interested in the subject, turned on by it, excited by the language, because you then become com- complicit in her plight. You become complicit in the uh, in the efforts that she's undertaking to take advantage of these boys. And I think that's why it was written the way it was. I think that it was written specifically to appeal to some of our basest sexual desires and a little bit of the voyeuristic or the voyeurism that we have to kind of shock us into forgetting that this is completely deplor- deplorable and repulsive conduct. Um, that being said, I, I just don't know what the purpose of the book was. Um, I, I can understand if there was a social commentary. I guess there's a bit of a social commentary to it, but I, I don't. I think that the social, the commentary that that the author was getting at, or at least the commentary that I derived from it by the end of the book, is that this person was really sick um, and that she needed help and that she was oblivious to the fact that she needed help, obviously, and that nobody else determined that she needed that help, that by the conclusion of the story, she feels as if she's gotten away with it when, in fact, all that's done is given her more opportunity to wreak this type of havoc on other, uh, other children. Um, and so she's not dealt with appropriately, even though um, the justice system did, you know, its duty, so to speak. And whether it's a, a travesty of the justice system or not, I'm not, I'm not going to go into. Um, but it certainly does turn on its ear 
the idea of pedophilia because we certainly do look at pedophilia differently, whether it's the woman uh, taking advantage of the boy or the man taking advantage of the woman. Because there's this idea, and I guess the book sort of uh, tries to promulgate this theory, the idea that if an older woman takes advantage of a younger man or young boy in this instance, that the boy is okay with it, that the boy is not going to be scarred by it, that the boy is, in fact, looks at this as an ego boost, or he is proud of his achievement, or he feels as if he's got some sort of a, a higher standing because this older teacher, in this instance, has taken an interest in him. And, and um, that that's a completely different spin when you look at the converse, which is the, the man who takes advantage of the young girl. And you feel as if this is a it, much more of an emotional issue, that the man taking advantage of the girl, that the girl is somewhat, um, uh, um, what's the word? She is um, fragile, that she cannot handle this, that the sexual relationship must become emotional. And, and I think that, that the author tried to address both of those situations, the emotional fragility of the minor balanced against the um, egotistical and um, heightened ego of the of the minor because the two boys that she does um, have these interactions with do come out of the relationships differently but I don't think that this kind of book could be written in the same way with the roles reversed I think that we as a public, would see that as a much more filthy and detestable and dirty situation where we would we would have to, you know, we'd read the book and then we'd have to go wash our hands or take a shower afterwards because we felt so dirty about what this older man was doing to this younger girl. And, and in fact, um, the Literary Disco uh, podcast reviewed a book a few weeks ago where it was actually nonfiction, but it was a, a portrayal of a relationship between an older teacher who was, I think, in his 30s, having a relationship with a, a girl who was in her, her early to mid-teens. And this was nonfiction. It was, it was written by the, the girl. Um, and and it, it felt dirty, and it felt ugly, and it felt nasty, and it felt uncouth. And yet, in reading Tampa, you don't feel that. Um, and I don't know whether it's a double standard. I don't know whether it's really the the differences in the sexes between the minor boy and the minor girl, where the minor boy is really much more about the physical, whereas the minor girl is still developing hormones and, and looking at things as emotional and, and is drawing that attachment. Uh, I'm not sure, but it, it's an interesting idea to take this book from this side of the equation to look at it from the standpoint of the woman, because we really don't pay much attention to that the idea of of a man an older man adult man taking advantage of a young girl to us smacks of molestation whereas an older woman taking advantage of a young boy is doesn't feel like it does it it doesn't feel like molestation it feels like just sex but sex with a minor um I don't know. It's it's an interesting idea. I, it's one that uh, I don't really have any interest in in exploring further because it's it's a topic that feels uncomfortable no matter which way you play it. Uncomfortable because 
I don't think that I would feel the same level of, of eroticism if it were told by the old adult man and the young girl. Um, and yet when the adult, the, 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 the Celeste character in this book, speaking with such freedom of her sexual proclivities and her desires is really, um, <laughs> you, know, you don't see it that often. You don't hear about it that often. The idea is that the men are sexual beings and the women have to be more reserved. And this is not that. This is turning that on its ear. And so there was a little bit of, of excitement and, and um, satisfaction. Satisfaction is not the right word. More excitement out of reading a story where the woman was that sexually liberated as to be very clear about what she wanted and how she wanted it, whether it w and, and the descriptions of those acts were very, very, um, very, very clear and um, straightforward. There was no beating around the bush about what she wanted or how she was going to get it and how it felt to her when it was done. And in fact, some of the things she said were downright disgusting because you don't really want to, you don't want to think about people doing those things or feeling those things. It's okay if you do it in the privacy of your own bedroom, but you don't got to share it with the world, and that's what she was doing. Um, so an interesting book, um, good, bad. I, I don't really have a, a position on it, good or bad. I think that if I were to give it a five-star rating, I'd probably feel bad about myself because it meant that I enjoyed it too much, when in fact I know that I need to feel repulsed by it and I need to feel aggravated by the situation. But there's still that that part of me that's a 14-year-old boy saying, wow, this, I wonder what that would have been like. And at the time, being 14 years old, would I have known that it was wrong? Would I have known that it was inappropriate? I, I don't know. Would it have mattered? I mean, even knowing it's wrong, people do a lot of things that they know it's wrong because they enjoy the pleasure that's derived from it. Um, and so as a 14-year-old boy who had questions and urges and 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 was unsure about sexuality and didn't know what was going on and, and and seemed to be much more enamored with the physical than than emotional um i don't know how how this how, how the 14 year old me would have reacted in a situation like this would it have been that different um i i don't know it's an interesting idea but again not something i really want to think about any further because it makes me uncomfortable uh, so that was Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. And the next book I want to talk about is The Pierced Heart by Lynn Shepard. And I made the joke about not wanting to spend 26 bucks on a 260-page book, and yet I spent 26 bucks on a 230-page book, um, which was this uh, Lynn Shepard, A Pierced Heart. And I've talked about Lynn in the past. I've mentioned her books, uh, I think, we discussed uh, quite a few episodes back about the book The Solitary House and how enjoyable I found it to be because it mixed uh, fiction with classic fiction. I mean, it brought in characters from Bleak House and uh, The Woman in White and interweaved it into this mystery involving these characters that uh, Lynn Shepard had created and how enjoyable I found that to be and the freedom that that allowed her to be able to take classic characters that people already knew and really mold them into something that she wanted to create. Um, and the second book that she wrote, called A Fatal Likeness, did that as well, although I wasn't as enamored with that book as I was with The Solitary House. The Fatal Likeness involved um, Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley obviously being the, the writer of the book Frankenstein, and Percy Shelley being her poet husband and, and playboy and... and um, 
free spirit that he was. And it was an enjoyable book. I found it to drag a little bit. But I think the reason why it dragged is because I wasn't really as in, involved in the story of Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley because I wasn't that familiar with their story. I know part of it, part of the fatal likeness had to do with who was really instrumental in the writing of the book Frankenstein because there have been rumors for uh, centuries about who actually wrote Frankenstein. And there's a long there's a, a story that's been told many, many times about how Frankenstein came up, where it was Mary and Percy and I think a couple other people who were away at a cabin or something like that on vacation, and they made a bed who could come up with the scariest story or something like that, and Mary Shelley came up with Frankenstein. Um, but nevertheless, the, the aspect of the book that I still really enjoyed was the melding of real characters and fictional characters, or real meaning um uh, from contemporary fiction or from classic fiction, whatever it was. Actually, in this instance, it was real characters. It was Marion and Percy Shelley and our um, our hero, Charlie Maddox. So when this third book came out, in fact, after the second book, after I read it, I, I tweeted at Lynn Shepard and told her how much I enjoyed the book and what was next. And she mentioned that the next book she would be taking on would be um, would be Dracula. And so I had been looking forward to this book for quite a while, and it finally came out. My bookstore didn't have it. Um, so after finally a couple weeks, they did stock it, and I was able to pick it up, and I read it over the course of basically two two days. And, and I really enjoyed this book. Uh, my only complaint is I wish it was longer because I so love the way she writes. Um, she writes in a manner which is different than anything I've ever read. It's the omniscient narrator, so it's the third person, but it's the, the narrator who is sort of floating above the scenes and, and reporting from what the narrator sees. However, this is done a little differently. This is the omniscient narrator who is t who is in, as best as I can perceive, present day, who is telling the story about the past. Um, and I'll give you a um, an example of that because uh, it's very interesting how how she does this. the 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 book tracks very well the story of Dracula, um, as as you may know. The story of Dracula begins with the one of the main characters, Jonathan Harker, who is summoned to um, the Count's castle to do some, I think it was legal work. And then while he's there, strange things happen. He leaves the castle, goes back to London. Turns out that the Count also moves to London, and then strange things happen there as well. And this book really tracks that pretty, pretty well. Similarly, um, our hero, Charlie Maddox, Charles. I don't know if we can call him Charlie. I, I guess I call him Charlie. Charles. Uh, Charles decides to go to um, to visit the Count at his castle. Um, he is going on a uh, on a request of the museum, local museum. The who is uh, I guess the Count is going to be contributing a lot of his heirlooms and artifacts to the museum, and the museum would like Charles to go and verify the validity of the heirlooms and the um, legitimacy of them, and so he goes. And he spends quite a lot of time there, and of course, strange things happen, and the the local townspeople are um, not sure what to expect. They're obviously very scared about um, they're very scared about this count, and they don't know what's going on. Strange things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, anyways, at the end of his stay at the count's castle. The Count does something to Charles and, and sends him away to be at an insane asylum. And so quite a few months pass, and then Charlie Charles somehow gets out. But we're not quite sure how. See, because Charles goes to 
the Count's castle in March of 1851. And the next time he appears after having been um, sent to the asylum, it's June 1851. And there's no explanation of how he got out of the asylum, what happened while he was in the asylum. And so our, our omniscient narrator does the following. Because she, she whoever our, our omniscient narrator is, and I think it's our author. I think our author is, is really our narrator. And, and she says, you're probably wondering what's happened. Because she says, as well as calculating, perhaps after looking back a page or so, that it is nigh on three months since we last encountered him. So she says, I get it. You're wondering where he's been. And you've looked back a couple pages, and then you look back at the beginning of the book, and you saw that three months had passed, and you're wondering what happened. And she says, Charles is standing at the window now, so we can, deduce that he, we can deduce that he did not lose his leg in the attack at the castle. But when he turns finally and moves towards his desk, we can see he is limping. And then it says, the document on the desk is a letter, and as he resumes his pen to complete it, we may perhaps be able to gather more of what happened to him in those few missing weeks. And it's just a, a, a wonderful way to sort of bring the reader into the story, but so that the, the omniscient narrator has sort of taken... The, uh, let me put it this way. When you're reading a book, and it's a book in third person, do you ever wonder who the narrator is talking to or what the purpose of utilizing third person is? Because when it's first person, you know that the first person narrator is talking to you or whomever it may be. Now, there have been other books where I've read them, they were in first person, you find out that it was some sort of a, a narration to a grand jury like I think uh, Defending Jacob was way back when we talked about that. But in a lot of instances, the first person narration is the main character telling you, the reader, the story. And yet, if you look at a third-person narration, it sometimes makes me wonder, well, who, why is this third-person narrator telling the story? Who is the third-person narrator telling the story to? Because there doesn't appear to be an obvious recipient other than the reader, and yet the reader can sometimes feel as if they're, they're spying on the subject through the third-person narration. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but... <clears throat> there, there doesn't ever seem to be an interaction between the third person narrate the third the narrated third person narration and the reader, and yet it, the way that Lynn Shepard writes, that's exactly what she does. She is telling the reader, "I am telling you, my reader, this story, and I'm sure you have questions, and I'm going to answer them for you. And here's how I'm going to answer them: I'm going to tell you what to look at. I'm going to identify that there's been a gap in time, and I'm going to acknowledge the fact that there's been this gap of time, and you're probably confused." And I think that that's just a, a wonderful way of bringing the reader into the story. There's a warmth to it where the reader is, or the, the narrator is bringing the reader into the story, is, is sort of pulling the reader along with her, is, is wrapping the narrator's arm around the reader's shoulders and pulling him or her tightly and saying, all right, here's the story I'm going to tell you, and I know you're going to have questions. I'm going to try and anticipate your questions, but if I don't anticipate your questions, I'm going to try and answer it anyways. And so it's it's really a, a, a remarkable way of, of telling the story. Uh, I did read Dracula, so I was familiar with the story, and this has a lot of odes to the Dracula story. 
um, one of the the main characters uh, slash victims of the Count is a character named Lucy, and I I believe that uh, if I recall correctly in Dracula, um, uh, Jonathan Harker's wife Mina, Mina Harker, uh, one of her best friends is Lucy Westenra, I think, and she's one of the Count's victims. And so there's a lot of overlap and and um, tracking of the same story. I'm not going to tell you too much more about it because I do encourage you to read it. It has a wonderful ending. Um, it does bring in the lore of Dracula into the story towards the end of it. I would have liked a little bit of closure with the um, the author of Bram Stoker because we all know that uh, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, did a lot of research um, into the Dracula lore. And uh, I think that he even believed that the story that, or I think there's a, a legend that the Dracula that he wrote was actually a true story. And so with the entry of Lucy and other characters I won't spoil for you who show up in the Dracula canon, I kind of expected that that the author would then somehow bring Bram Stoker into this, whether it be, and I think Dracula was written about 30 or 35 years after the events in this book take place in the 18, the book takes place in 1851. I think Dracula was written in the 1880s or 1890s. Um, but I would have liked some sort of a link to Bram Stoker because I thought it would have been an interesting um, kind of wink and a nod towards the reader. Um, but nevertheless, um, I did actually enjoy the way that it concluded because it it did resolve a bit of an issue that um, had been looming for the past two books, the first two books in the Charles Maddox series, this concept of, of a loss that Charles had suffered as a young child. I won't again, divulge too much more into that, but uh, I will recommend that the book get read because um, there's just something really enjoyable and intoxicating about the writing that it is, it is, it is, um, what do you call it? It is loyal to the language of the time. It is loyal to a description of the locations at that time. But we know that our author is telling it to us, at least, well, we know, I think, that the author is telling it to us as if he or she is sitting right next to us in 2014. And so it's a really interesting blend. I am really looking forward to what uh, Lynn Shepard comes up with next. And of course, I will be first in line to buy the book, provided it is at my bookstore. So a pe- The Pierced Heart by Lynn Shepard. Another another success, another satisfying another satisfying read from Lynn Shepard. The next book I want to talk about, Blue Labyrinth by Preston and Child. I am a huge fan of the Aloysius Pendergast series. I have read virtually all of them. The only book I have not read in the Pendergast canon is the book Reliquary, which was a sequel to the book Relic, which was a movie. Um, And interestingly enough, it was a movie that Aloysius Pendergast did not even appear in, which doesn't make any sense to me. But I've read all of the books other than Reliquary in the Pendergast series um, and have been a a big fan of them, although I feel as if they've consistently disappointed me and I've been blind to that realization. The first book I read in the series was The Cabinet of Curiosities, And I can safely say it was probably one of the scariest books I've ever read, although it was incredibly enjoyable and wonderful. And 
after having read that book and then read the second book, um, Still Life with Crows, which was equally as, as enjoyable, although not quite as, as terrifying, I came to what ended up being becoming the first book in the Diogenes trilogy. And so Preston and Child have, have interestingly enough, crafted this series as a continuing stream of stories, book after book after book, but they are grouped. They can be read, I guess, in any order. But they are they can't be grouped as parts of different series. As they're mini series, so there's a three book stretch: Brimstone, Dance of Death, and the Book of the Dead, that are called the Diogenes trilogy. And those involve Pendergast's um, relationship and pursuit of his his evil twin brother. I don't know if they're twins, but his evil. I think they're twins. Evil brother Diogenes. And then there's another sequence of books that involve um, Aloysius Pendergast's search for um, his wife's killer because his wife had died uh, right after they had been married. And so those books are, uh, if I recall correctly, it's um, Cemetery Dance, Fever Dream, Cold Vengeance, Two Graves. I'm not sure. I, th- I think those all, maybe I'm wrong as to which ones are, are in that grouping of the the mini-series of, of um, Pendergast's wife. Um, but this book, Blue Labyrinth, is the conclusion of that series because they, what you find out in one of the previous books, I think it was, um, I think it was Two Graves, that uh, Pendergast's wife may or may not have actually been killed on safari, which is, you know, the, the lore of how she was killed, um, that she, in fact, was pregnant, that she'd had twins, and that these twins were being um, bred um, to create this, uh, um, like, army of superhuman men, um, basically. And so this book, Blue Labyrinth, is the conclusion of that miniseries. And, and I had heard and read... Um, interviews with Preston and Child as to how excited they were for this book and how they believed it was their um, it was their best book yet. And so I was having that kind of looming in my mind as I began reading this book. Um, I was excited for it, but I was also a little bit suspect because it was only 400 pages long. I think Cabinet of Curiosities was like 600 pages long and Still Life with Crows was over 500 pages. Granted, I read them in paperback, but they seem to have been getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, and, and over time, as the books seem to have been getting shorter and shorter and shorter, they've also been getting less and less scary. Um, and so that was something that that had bothered me over time. Um, there had always been an element of supernatural to the Pendergast stories, um, and it was okay to suspend disbelief because you understand as you're reading this book that you were reading about a modern-day Sherlock Holmes who had significant idiosyncrasies but had developed some pretty good, satisfying relationships with um, whether it be the police officer Vincent D'Agosta or um, Corey Swanson, the um, the young girl who he had taken under his wing and I think still alive with crows, or um, Margot Green, who um, was the, one of the curators at the museum. So she, he had developed these nice relationships and these characters had been coming in and out over the period of the series. It got to the point, uh, not got to the point, uh, that the aspect of them being terrifying though or scary seemed to have worn off. I remember when I had read the first two books, Cabinet of Curiosities and Still Life with Crows, I had bought in paperback Brimstone 
as the next book in line. And I had had that book on my shelf for a good six months before I actually picked it up and read it because I was worried that it would be too scary. I was worried that it would be um, things that go bump in the night and difficulty sleeping. And yet it really wasn't that. It had little elements of it, but not really enough. Um, And so the books since then have really failed to really broach that terrifying aspect and have really just been more Sherlock Holmesian type mysteries that have kind of bizarre twists and um, unexplainable phenomena. And I got okay with that. Um, it, it, it was okay. I, they were fast reads and they were enjoyable and I liked the characters. And yet this book, Blue Labyrinth, it just kind of fell flat for me on so many different levels. It was slow. There was nothing supernatural about it at all. It did bring to a closure, I guess, <clears throat> the stories of Pendergast and his wife and um, you know the family history of, of Pendergast and where his wealth came from because he's a man of significant wealth who works for the FBI but does it for barely any money because he's significantly wealthy. Although I don't recall we ever really discover why Pendergast does it, but I think it's so that he has the freedom to go where he pleases and, and investigate what he wants to investigate. Um, but this book just fell flat. Um, I found myself rushing to finish it because I just wanted it over. There wasn't anything particularly compelling about it. Uh, I think Pendergast was in the throes of of dementia or or you know uh, the onset of death for quite a long time, and yet he never seemed to die. And then of course he's saved, and um, it, it just it was just not a satisfying read. Um, and I was pretty disappointed. And, and I really would hope. I, I, I discussed um, another Pendergast and or another Preston Child book a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago, um, and it was uh, one of the the Gideon books. I don't remember the Lost Island, the Lost Symbol, whatever it was called. And I mentioned that I thought it started out pretty well, but then it had kind of failed as it came to the end. Maybe we didn't talk about it. Maybe it was something I wrote in a review. Um, and this book just kind of did the same, and I. And I just hope that the demands of putting out so many books per year is not taking Preston and Child away from really creating um, exciting and potentially terrifying mysteries. Um, And so I I think, like with all series or all authors, uh, there comes a time when you have to say enough is enough. I'm not quite there yet with Preston and Child. I I think that I will read um, the next one or two Pendergast books that come out. But if they're like this, then I may just kind of put them aside, say they were fun while they were last, fun while it lasted, um, and um, and that was it. It's it's time to move on. So Blue Labyrinth by Preston and Child, um, disappointing, disappointing. Now the last book that I want to discuss with you is a book that I never would have discovered, never would have heard of, except for a recommendation. Now let me give you a background on how the recommendation had come about. You've all heard me talk about the author Peter James and how I discovered him only in June in anticipation of reading Face Off and uh, attending the Thriller Fest in New York. And during Thriller Fest, as I recorded previously, I got to meet Peter James. And since that time, he and I have enjoyed a very nice email relationship back and forth. You know, we email maybe once a week, once every couple weeks. 
And I think he enjoyed as I was emailing him as as I would finish each of the books in the Roy Gray series and what my thoughts were, certain cliffhangers that I was excited about, certain plot twists that I had to divulge to him I was um, particularly surprised by. And I think he got a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment out of going through the series with me as I as I read along. And he had mentioned to me at Thriller Fest that he was going to be coming to LA in October or November and that he that I should email him and we could get together for a drink. And during the, the course of our email relationship, um, the, the time that he was coming to LA was getting closer and closer. And he was good as his word. And we met up for drinks on Veterans Day. He was here in, in LA to uh, participate in I think it's called Boucher Con down in Orange County or Long Beach, Long Beach it was, which is a, a book convention. And good to his word, we met up for about an hour for drinks and we talked and it was just he and I. And it was a wonderful hour. It was a, a terrific opportunity to talk about the Roy Gray books, to talk about his writing process, to talk about inspiration for his books, to talk about specific books um, individually, and also to get to know him and, and uh, um, kind of his history. And so after we had had, had our meeting and, and um, committed to staying in touch, when he said, please keep in touch, and I said, well, only if it's okay with you, and he said, absolutely. And he, he mentioned that next time he's in town, he would love to, to um, get together with his significant other and, and my wife and I for dinner so we could spend more time together. Um, I emailed him the next day and thanked him for meeting and said that I had forgotten there was something that I wanted to ask him, which is I wanted to ask him for a recommendation because in, in the, the, the freedom of doing this podcast means I can really read anything I want. You don't want to hear me talking about the same authors all the time. You don't want to hear me reviewing this Michael Connolly book or that Michael Crichton, if although he's not writing books anymore, or this book or that book all in the same series of, of, of authors that I read. In fact, if you look on my Goodreads, there have been books that I've read that I haven't even talked about here because I don't think that you'd enjoy my talking about them and there's nothing particularly interesting that I want to discuss about them. But I am looking for recommendations and I've asked you, the listener, to give me recommendations. I've certainly taken recommendations from other people. And so I asked, um, I asked Peter for a recommendation. And the book he recommended was a book called Alex, A-L-E-X, it's a name, and it's by an author named Pierre Lemaitre. And if you are anything for linguistics, you know that that's a French name, and this is a French book. And it's a book that was written in French and translated into the English. And in fact, I don't even know if it's available for print uh, here in, in L.A. Um, I had to order it from overseas, and so I, um, I received a, uh, I think, a British edition. I think it was printed in London. And anyways, it was printed or it was first written in 2011, but translated in 2013. And um, it's a French crime novel. And I am very, um, I am very discriminatory or close-minded is a better word because I don't give any thought to the fact that there are other countries that write books. As far as I'm concerned, the only people who write books are Americans and British people because those are the only books I see in my bookstore. I don't give thought to the fact that Australians write books or Spain, Spaniards write books or South Africans write books or Germans write books or Japanese write books. Although, I guess, um, what's this guy? The the guy who wrote I 1Q84, uh, Miyazaki, no, whatever his name is. Uh, I guess he writes books. Um, but I never gave thought to the fact that, that people in other countries really write books. And uh, if they're not translated into English, I'd never discover them. So like the Stieg Larsson books, 
Swedish wouldn't have discovered them unless they were translated, and thus we have Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But so Alex was a crime novel that Peter had uh, recommended, and so I bought it, and I read it, and devoured it over the course of two days, and it was just spectacular. And it was spectacular because of one thing. It's 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 a, a, a straightforward crime novel, so don't think of it as... as something I've never read before, although it was something I never read before, so I've now said it and then gone back on my word. It was a crime novel. It's a kidnapping. It's a woman who gets kidnapped and is brutally brutally tortured, and the police who are on the trail of the kidnapper to try and find her. And at times it felt like reading, interestingly enough, um, one of the Roy Grace books, and I don't remember offhand, I think it was Dead Like You, where one of the characters gets kidnapped. And so that it it seemed to track that pretty similarly, um, although it was much more grotesque and uncomfortable, the methods of torture and the the true brutality of the the bad guy. Um, one of the things that really stands out as far as this book is concerned is that it really was written alternating chapters of Alex, who is the kidnap victim, and um, and, and our, our main character, I guess, our police inspector, um, Camille. And this is one just thing that I had to discuss, is that the, 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 I don't know if this was intentional, I can't imagine it was, but when you think of Alex, you think of Alex, and Alex is a, kind of a male voice, a male name, and then you think of Camille, and then another character's name was Jean, J-E-A-N, and those feel like female names. And yet Camille and Jean, but it wasn't Jean, it was probably Jean, those are the male characters who are the police officers, and Alex was the uh, obviously the female victim. But after the first 150 pages or so, um, I guess that's about what it was, part one of the book is concluded. And all through part one you are viewing Alex as this victim and you are feeling so terrible for her. How brutal of a situation she's going through. How miserable she is. The, the strains on her body, the, the uh, lack of food, the, the starvation, the, um, the thirst, not to mention the physical brutality and the, the, um, the stress that her body is under being in the circumstances that she's in. And yet after the first 150 pages, that issue is resolved. And I find myself I found myself wondering after I finished that first, okay, this is not what I expected because this is a 380 page book. Um, and yet I expected that it would be 380 pages of of torture and and um, kidnap victim and the cops pursuing uh, discovery of, of her location. And the book takes twists from there. And it is a complete change from the traditional crime novel. And I'm not going to tell you any of the details because I'm going to encourage you to read it because you will not believe what this book does to you. Because the only thing I can tell you is this book is one complete and total manipulation. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to tell you anything else about it. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you that the book is broken up into three parts, and they are three very distinct parts. But I'm not going to tell you any more about it. I'm going to tell you that the um, that the view, 
I had of of um, of Camille, the the picture I had of him, was the cartoon Inspector Clouseau that showed up in the Pink Panther films, and I think that was intended because our character Camille is only four foot ten, very diminutive of stature, and there are various jokes that are made about his height, and he has a very significant height disadvantage when questioning suspects and when questioning witnesses. And yet he is much larger of mind and thinks in a way that nobody else thinks of. And he has an internal strife and a turmoil that similarly that 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 is similar to um, the Roy Grace stories, as you as we may have discussed, Roy Grace's story is Prior to the start of book one, even, his wife had disappeared on his 30th birthday and was never heard from again. And so he has that issue always looming in the back of his mind, this idea that perhaps his wife is still out there, maybe she was kidnapped, maybe she was killed, maybe she ran away. There was a lack of closure for Roy. And in this book, Camille's wife had been killed and yet the culprit never found. And this was prior to the beginning of the story. His wife, Irene, or Irene, Irena, I don't know, depends on how you pronounce it, um, was killed and uh, her murderer never found. And so he has that constantly in the back of his mind. And the circumstances of Irene's killing, because she was kidnapped first, also bring to light the kidnapping of Alex. And so there's questions about whether Camille is actually fit to even take on this case. And in fact, he resists it at the outset. But once he once he gets involved, he's not willing to let go. And so it, it, it obviously goes from there. Um, Camille is not a particularly likable character, although there are, are times in which he, he does take an action which is... Um, exciting or satisfying where you you are are uh, cheering him on but for the most part he's not particularly likable uh the real uh the real drive of this book is the character of alex and i found <clears throat> i found myself reading um one more chapter about camille just so i could get to one more chapter about alex um I, I encourage you, after you've read it, to email me at uh, booktherapy13 at booktherapy13 at gmail.com. Tweet me at booktherapy13. Um, find me on Goodreads, Rob Cohen13. Um, find me on uh, Facebook, whatever it is. Find me and tell me what you thought of this book because I absolutely love this book. Um, at, at the first 100 pages or so, I was reading it thinking, okay, well, I'll I'll finish this, but that'll be it. I won't really read any more uh, by this author. And yet, I know that there's at least two more books. Um, and in fact, I think the second book is Irene. So it's a, a probably a prequel, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, and, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get through this book. I'll tell Peter I liked it, and then I won't read any more by this author. And yet, by the end of the book, um, I was clamoring for the next one. And I'm not going to tell you any more than that. So that was Alex by Pierre Lemaitre. Believe me, you will want to read this book. And then you will be just as surprised by it, excited by it, and astounded by it as I was. So that's it for this uh, episode. I am anticipating, potentially, the opportunity of speaking with Philip maybe tomorrow night. We've got a couple of books to talk about. 
Um, again, one of the books he chose, one of the books I chose, and I'm interested to hear his thoughts on those books and interested to discuss with him my thoughts. But uh, that's it for me. This is Rob Cohen for Book Therapy, and thank you for letting me lie on your couch.